0: Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. The work of my guest today first came to my attention when I was working on the American Overdose series with author Chris McGreal. He's been on 60 Minutes, he's testified before Congress, and He's been called as an expert witness on the opioid epidemic in the Oklahoma Opioid Trial. His name? Dr. Andrew Kolodny. Dr. Kolodny provides a candid glimpse into some of the policies that help fuel the worst health crisis in American history. As we begin, Dr. Kolodny wades into the FDA missteps that help perpetuate a growing opioid crisis and the missed opportunities to keep it in check.
1: The mistake that FDA made wasn't so much that, or its original mistake, wasn't so much that it approved OxyContin, uh, that it approved or allowed Purdue Pharma to release uh, its new opioid, uh, an extended-release oxycodone product called OxyContin. That really wasn't so much the issue. Uh, the issue was that the Food and Drug Administration allowed Purdue to promote OxyContin for conditions where we shouldn't prescribe an extended-release opioid. OxyContin is a good drug for treating pain near the end of life, uh, for example, for metastatic cancer. And had the food and Drug Administration properly enforced existing federal law, it would have limited Purdue to promoting OxyContin for use in palliative care settings. It would have allowed Purdue to send its sales force to visit oncologists and palliative care doctors and hospices uh, but it would not have allowed Purdue to promote OxyContin to the family doctors, to primary care, to dentists, um, because existing federal law limits drug companies to promoting their products to for conditions where using the drug is more likely to help someone than harm them. And certainly if a drug like OxyContin is prescribed to someone near the end of life, Oxycontin is more likely to help that person than harm them, but when it's prescribed for for people with chronic headaches or backaches or minor, moderately painful problems, the oxycontin is more likely to harm that patient than help them. And so, the real mistake was was allowing Purdue to promote oxycontin for broad uses where it was never proven safe and effective.
0: So, the first FDA mistake was opening the door to let Purdue Pharma market their products well beyond the intended use of end-of-life care and promoting it to family doctors, primary care providers, and dentists.
1: The law requires adequate and well-controlled clinical trials for demonstration of both effectiveness or efficacy is the term that's, that's used, and, and safety, and um, the l- level of uh, safety evidence that you might require for a drug that's going to be used for someone who's near the end of life isn't the, um, or for a drug that's used short term is going to be different than what you might require for for a highly addictive drug that's going to be prescribed long term. But unfortunately, FDA never insisted on that data before allowing Purdue to promote OxyContin broadly. Certainly. By 1999, 2000, 2001, it should have been clear to the FDA that the prescribing of, of OxyContin and not just OxyContin, but all opioids, the prescribing was taking off at a rate much faster than could be clinically needed. And there were reports from Appalachia and New England um, by, by, by 99, 2000, 2001 of. of addiction and overdose deaths involving opioids. And certainly at that point, FDA could have said, gee, that we've got a problem here. We've got to finally enforce the law. We've got to limit the marketing of opioids to those conditions where they are more likely to help people than harm them, which is what the law says. And FDA didn't do that. And in fact, it went the opposite direction in 2002, that was the first year that IMPACT formed.
0: IMPACT, or the Initiative on Methods, Measurement, and Pain Assessment in Clinical Trials, was first outlined in our series on American overdose.
1: IMPACT was a, a private group that met with FDA, it was Meeting. It was a. It was an organization that basically held meetings once or twice a year in the Washington D.C. area, and FDA officials involved in approving opioids would attend these meetings, and representatives from pharmaceutical companies would attend these meetings. And in fact, the the drug companies were charged twenty five, thirty, thirty five thousand dollars a piece to send one person to. Attend the meeting with the FDA officials. And it was at these private meetings that FDA, as I mentioned, went in the opposite direction. Um, They would meet and ultimately change the rules on how opioids are approved to make it easier for drug companies to get their opioids on the market. And so we wound up with a steady stream of new opioids. And each time a new opioid was approved, each time a new opioid hit the market, it hit the market with a campaign to increase prescribing. So at a time when the prescribing is taking off and leading to a public health crisis and doctors should be encouraged to prescribe less or more cautiously, every time a new opioid got approved, well, the drug company that brought it to market spent millions of dollars to bring it to market the only way they can recoup their investment and make a profit is if doctors start to prescribe their newly approved opioid. And the only way a doctor is going to prescribe a new pharmaceutical product is if that doctor knows about that product, which means sales force out there visiting doctors. It means advertising, marketing. So every time a new opioid got approved, it was like pouring fuel on a fire. You now had a new pharmaceutical company with an incentive to see doctors prescribe more opioids, and that just made the problem worse.
0: And one example of the process, the modification process, that was a result of the impact meetings was what they called enriched enrollment. Can you explain what that is and how that impacted expediting the process, the approval process?
1: Enriched enrollment, um, and uh, the, the formal term for it is enriched enrollment randomized withdrawal. Um, That's the the formal term for it. Uh, Another uh, term could be cooking the books um, because it's a way of doing a clinical trial on an opioid um, uh, to, to make that drug look better than it actually is so that it can be approved. The normal way of doing a clinical trial a study for a drug to be approved is with a me- methodology that's called randomized double blind placebo controlled that's the correct way to do a a clinical trial and that's how drugs had always been approved and that's how other drugs aside from analgesics are approved to this day. The correct way to do the trial is to give half the patients in the study the real drug. And half the patients get a sugar pill, a fake, you know, it's a placebo drug that has no effect. And you don't tell the patients in the study if they're getting the real drug or the sugar pill. And the clinicians, the, the researchers doing the study, the ones who interact with the patients, they're also not told Who's getting the real drug or who's getting the placebo? And so that's double blind, meaning the researchers are blinded to who's on the real drug and the patients are blinded to who's on the real drug. Double blind and randomized means that you randomly select patients to either be on the study drug or the sugar pill, the placebo. And so what you're supposed to do then is compare the people getting the real drug to the people getting the sugar pill, um, for, uh, for whatever the drug is supposed to work on and then see if it really works. And that's how a drug is supposed to be approved. The problem that the drug companies had was when you try to get an opioid approved for use with in chronic pain, like low back pain. If you try to do the trial using the appropriate approach, the drug doesn't look very effective. And opioids, while they are good for short-term use, and while they're good for people with near the end of life, when you can keep going higher and higher on the dose, they're not very good for conditions like low back pain. And so If you did the study the correct way, let's say you gave 100 patients an opioid like Opana, which was the first opioid approved using enriched enrollment. If you gave 100 patients with low back pain Opana and you gave another 100 patients a placebo and you tried to study them over time, let's say you wanted to study them over Ninety days to see, you know, does the opana work better for the low back pain than the than the sugar pill? Well, what happens is that in the group that gets the opana, you see a very high dropout rate. About fifty percent of people given an opioid don't like it. Um, they don't like the way they feel on it. They can't. They feel like they can't drive or concentrate. They may not like the constipation that opioids cause and, or they feel nauseous on it. And so you see a very high dropout rate. So about half of the 100 people given the Opana drop out, and you're only left with about 50 on Opana. For the people who get the sugar pill, well, there's no side effects, so nobody's really dropping out from the the placebo arm of the study. And then when you're done with the study, A lot of people with back pain, the backache gets better on its own. And there's also a placebo effect. So if you think that this pill is going to help your backache, that can also make your backache get better. And so at the end of the trial, the 50 remaining people who stayed on the Opana, their pain wasn't any better than the people who got the sugar pill. And so you're left with a drug that was poorly tolerated. And no better than the placebo, that's not adequate for approving a new product. And so the drug companies were not able to get their products on them, their opioids on the market for chronic pain using the standard approach. So what they did at these impact meetings was to come up with a new way of doing these trials called enriched enrollment that would actually make the drug. Look better than placebo. And the way you do an enriched enrollment trial is that you give all 200 patients in the study the OPANA in a four to six week open label phase. What does that mean? That means that everyone who's going to be in the study, instead of giving half of them the sugar pill and half of them the Opana, you give all of them the Opana for four to six weeks. Now, what happens is that about half of the 200 will drop out because, like I said, about 50% of people don't hate the way they feel on an opioid. And so you're left with 100 people. And then you ask the 100 patients, who have been on Opana for four to six weeks, you ask them, did you find Opana to be helpful for your backache? If they say, no, this didn't help me at all, you take them out of the study as well. And now you're left with a remaining, let's say 80 people. Um, Out of the original 200, you're left with 80 people who tolerated Opana and found it somewhat helpful. Now with that 80 patients, you randomly select half of them to be switched to placebo, and the other half get to stay on the Opana. That's your enriched enrollment. And so you're now studying the drug, not in a general population, but in a unique population of people who tolerated the drug and found it helpful. Now, what happens to the 40 patients who get switched to placebo? Well, if you've been on an opioid, a strong opioid, for four to six weeks and someone switches you to a sugar pill, an inactive placebo, the patients are going to go into withdrawal. And one of the Uh, very prominent symptoms people experience when they go into withdrawal is a worsening of pain. Their pain actually gets worse. Everything hurts when people are going into withdrawal. And so the people switched to placebo are now experiencing more pain than the people who are getting to stay on the opana. Then you carry your trial through. And at the end, People on Opana had less pain than the people who were given a placebo. Of course, this is no longer a placebo controlled trial because, as I mentioned, or it's no longer a double blind trial because, as I mentioned, double blind means that the researchers and the patients don't know who's actually on, on the study drug because if a patient was taking an opioid. A strong opioid for, for four to six weeks, and you now give them the sugar pill going into withdrawal. The patient knows that they're, they're in the group that's getting the placebo, and the researchers know who's getting the placebo because they're all complaining of withdrawal symptoms. And so it's no longer a double blind placebo controlled trial, but that's the method for making the opioid look better than the sugar pill.
0: So. Mistake number two, the FDA allowed industry to modify the clinical trial process to include only patients who get benefit from the opioids they're trialing and not even attempting to hide those given placebos in the control group. So, what else would you call that other than cooking the books?
1: Ever since Opana was approved in 2006, that is the method that's been used for approval of every opioid since, including Zohydro and Hycingla and Avinza and, you know, a whole long list of of opioids. It's shocking. It it is shocking. And it grew out of these private pay-to-play meetings that never should have happened in in the first place. Um, 60 Minutes did a story, uh, I believe, uh, last March, maybe on um, FDA's mishandling of of opioids and pointed out that FDA has been allowing opioids to be promoted for chronic pain, even though studies have never been done uh, to show that they work long-term. And there was even a former FDA commissioner who appeared on 60 Minutes saying FDA has made terrible mistakes with regard to opioids and shouldn't have allowed the marketing for for chronic pain. After the 60 minutes story aired, the commissioner of FDA, who just recently stepped down, uh, Commissioner uh, Gottlieb, um, announced that we're going to finally make the drug companies do the long-term studies. And um, we've learned recently the methodology that they plan to use for these long-term studies, which is going to be enriched enrollment. That's what the current director of the analgesic division at FDA has announced.
0: In the meantime, just weeks ago, we learned that the former director of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, left for a position in the pharmaceutical industry.
1: That's correct. And it didn't surprise me Uh, Dr. Gottlieb had been working for industry prior to his position, uh, prior to his appointment as commissioner of FDA. So um, it, it didn't surprise me that he would immediately go back to working for, for industry. I was very concerned about his nomination. I thought it was helpful for an FDA commissioner to communicate that people can become addicted to opioids, even when taking them as prescribed. Um, unfortunately, though, uh, Dr. Gottlieb really didn't fix any of these very serious mistakes um, that have been made over the years. And so other than some helpful public statements, the policies uh, that got us into this mess remain in place.
0: And I think that a contributing factor is also the revolving door to industry, which he's exited for industry, as so many others have. How much of an impact do you feel that's had on the opioid epidemic, doctor?
1: I think that's been a very big part of the problem. Uh, And so, you know, I I had mentioned that maybe we could give FDA the benefit of the doubt in the very early years, but then they should have figured out that they had made a mistake. Um, You know, you could give them the benefit of the doubt, but um, it is true that the same FDA official who approved OxyContin, Dr. Curtis Wright, um, after approving OxyContin, shortly after approving OxyContin, Took a job working for Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of OxyContin. And we've seen every director of the analgesic division um, do, the, do the same basically after approving opioids, taking jobs working for opioid manufacturers. That's true for Dr. Cynthia McCormack. It's true for uh, Dr. Bob Rappaport. And um, I will not be surprised if the current Director of the analgesic division, Dr. Sharon Hertz, uh, does the same. And of course, before leaving FDA to take positions, working with pharmaceutical companies that manufacture analgesics, um, they've made decisions that have been very friendly to these companies.
0: Why don't we stop that?
1: When you think about the opioid crisis, when you think about uh, the, the severe epidemic of opioid addiction that we're experiencing in the United States, which May be the most serious public health catastrophe we've experienced since the Spanish flu outbreak. Um, which uh, you know, if you if you look at the mortality, um, and so you know, this is a severe epidemic. And when we when we use the the term epidemic, often that's referring to a, a disease outbreak, a, a bacteria or a, a virus. Um, that that spreads and 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 causes disease. Um, the opioid epidemic wasn't caused obviously by a disease outbreak. It was caused really by greed. This is a man-made epidemic, and because this was a man-made crisis, what it suggests is that the systems that we have in place to protect. The public from corporations that might harm people in their pursuit of profit. That the different safeguards that we have that they failed us, and there there are many different failures, both on a federal level, federal agency failures on a state level. You know, for example, states uh, regulate the way doctors practice medicine, and you know there's a there were failures in medical education, failures in in the in medical journals, and in the ability to in in the effort to um, prevent drug companies from influencing the content in medical journals or medical education. There many different failures, and if you think about a, a public health catastrophe that has resulted, maybe in more than a half a million deaths over the past. You know, twenty twenty five years, um, we have to at this point be saying, well, where did we go wrong, and what lessons do should we learn, and and what needs fixing, so that we would prevent anything like this from ever happening again. And we've been talking about FDA. I I don't think there's a better example in history of a regulatory agency failure leading to a public health crisis than, than what we're dealing with today. And one of the very obvious policy interventions would be to stop the revolving door. I really believe there needs to be legislation that would prohibit uh, someone who, an individual who works for a regulatory agency to go right to work for of the agencies that they were regulating, um, there, there need to be some measures put in place uh, to, to limit this type of behavior. And you know, it's not just FDA, by the way, it's also the Drug Enforcement Administration, where we've seen many uh, DEA officials involved in regulating legal narcotics, take jobs working for uh, narcotics manufacturers and distributors.
0: Another issue is the fact that 75% of the budget for the FDA is the licensing fees that's done to license their products, get their products through the approval process. So 75% of their budget comes from industry. Does that cause a problem?
1: It does. There was a law passed, I think, in the early 90s called the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, or people refer to it as PDUFA, uh, which is the acronym for Prescription Drug User Fee Act. I, I can see how Congress may have thought that Padufa was a good idea when they passed the law, because I, I'm guessing that, that members of Congress believe that, you know, drug companies make so much money when their products get approved, why should the taxpayer foot the bill for the approval process, make the drug companies pay to have their products reviewed? And so it may have seemed like a good idea. Uh, when the law was first introduced. But it's been an awful idea because what it did was to change the relationship between FDA and the companies that it regulates. And over time, with lobbying from pharmaceutical companies with each reauthorization of the PDUFA bill, you would see measures uh, put in place speed up the approval process more basically Congress began requiring through PADUFA that FDA offer drug companies better customer service and approve their products quicker. And so FDA really went from an agency that was regulating drug companies to an agency that had to was now required to offer them good customer service. And I think that really it may, the introduction of PDUFA may mark a, a change in FDA because there was a time when FDA was really the world's best drug regulator. There was a time when the FDA was, was really, I believe, the best drug re- regulator in the world and things have changed quite a bit since the introduction of PDUFA.
0: A number of failed policies. Um, It seems like another one of those was their risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, or REMS. Can you tell us a little bit about that and where it went awry? Around
1: 2007, I believe, Congress passed a law giving FDA new authority um, to require manufacturers of dangerous medicines to take extra precautions to keep the public safe. And it wasn't a law specific to opioids, any particular, any any dangerous medicine with serious side effects. FDA would be allowed to require the manufacturer to to take special measures. For example, not let a doctor prescribe the product unless they've taken a special course. And that's a a, a typical REMS um, program. Um, In around 2009, FDA announced that it was going to use this new authority uh, to impose REMS programs on drug companies, that they were going to use it for extended-release opioids, drugs like OxyContin or or Opana or the fentanyl patch, and that um, more or less that this plan would likely require that before a doctor could prescribe OxyContin or, or a fentanyl patch, they would have to have a certification that they were educated in how to how to use it and and understood the drug's risks. Or a pharmacy wouldn't dispense it unless the the doctor was on the list that they had taken the special training. Well, the manufacturers of these products knew very well that if a doctor was required to take a special course in order to prescribe their product, that many doctors wouldn't bother to take the course, that many doctors might say, well, I'm fine prescribing short-acting opioids like Vicodin. Uh, I'm not going to take some special class in order to prescribe OxyContin. Um, they knew that many prescribers, probably the vast majority of prescribers, would opt out of any special training. and That would dramatically shrink the pool of clinicians able to prescribe these products and would certainly hurt their their bottom line. Uh, What happened between 2009 when FDA announced this REMS plan and the summer of 2010 when it presented a revised plan for a vote to an external advisory committee, what happened during that period of time, that year and a half or so? was that FDA completely gutted their REMS proposal. All of the elements of the REMS that would have resulted in a significant decrease in prescribing of opioids were removed. And instead, the final plan called not for a certification process in order to prescribe an extended release opioid, but instead called for voluntary industry-sponsored educational programs, educational programs that were very similar to the same type of education that resulted in the increase in prescribing in the first place. And um, that plan was presented to an external advisory committee in the summer of 2010. The committee voted down the plan. They said, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, industry-sponsored education. Well, that's how we got into this mess and the drug com- drug makers shouldn't be doing the education. That's the fox guarding the hen house. And, and your plan, you really need to go back to the drawing board. This is good, not going to help. FDA, unfortunately, went ahead with that plan anyway, despite the, the vote against it from its advisors. And what we wound up was uh, with what's called the ERLA, REMS, ERLA, for Extended Release Long Acting Opioid REMS Program. And uh, the, these are programs all over the country. They're free for doctors. Some states don't recognize how bad these programs are. And state legislators in some states have actually mandated that doctors take these programs, even though the content of these programs um, may encourage aggressive prescribing rather than promote cautious prescribing.
0: Doctor, as you look down the road here, can you give us some positives and some trends that are happening that would give us a little bit of encouragement in terms of how we're going to find our way out of this opioid epidemic?
1: What we need to do about the problem becomes more clear. What we have to do is prevent more people from becoming opioid addicted, really contain it, and we have to see that the millions who are opioid addicted can access effective treatment. And the treatment has to be easier to get than it is to buy a bag of dope. If we really want people to seek treatment, if you're opioid addicted, when you wake up in the morning, you're going to be feeling sick. Most heroin users or, or pain patients on opioids are going to have an opioid right by the bedside to use as soon as they wake up. Otherwise, they're going to be feeling ill. And when I say ill, I'm not just referring to the flu-like symptoms of opioid withdrawal. But when people run out of their opioids, there's very severe anxiety. It's like a panic attack. It's been described as a sense of impending doom. People really feel like they're going to die. And if you know you're going to be feeling very sick. And you know where you can buy a bag of heroin, but to find treatment with a doctor uh, um, or from a treatment program is expensive and complicated. Um, You're just, you know, people are just going to keep using. So we really have to flip that. So to bring the opioid crisis under control, we have to reduce the number of people who become opioid addicted every year. That's the incidence rate. We need to see that the incidence is going down. The main way to get there is through much more cautious prescribing so that less patients get addicted and so that we stop stocking homes with a highly addictive drug. And for the millions who are addicted, we have to see that they can very easily access effective treatment. And we have to see that naloxone is very widely available um, when when over when uh, an opioid overdose is a leading cause of death in the United States. Making an antidote for an opioid overdose is widely available is as, as a no-brainer, and other harm reduction strategies are are important. So those are the main strategies, the big picture strategies for bringing the crisis under, for bringing the crisis under control. There is evidence that we're making some progress. Um, there are several states where overdose deaths have come down significantly. Um, And for some states, there's been a a trend toward fewer deaths involving opioids uh, that begins when the prescribing trend did more cautious and prescribing has started to become a bit more cautious. Um, When you look at the national data um, and it's not the best way to, to really judge how we're doing. Because in the eastern half of the United States, over the past few years, there was a soaring increase in deaths involving illicitly synthesized fentanyl. Deaths really in heroin users have skyrocketed in the eastern half of the United States. And it sort of masks what's happening um, in different geographic areas. So it's hard to really look at the national data. But you know, we are seeing, for the first time in 25 years, that overdose deaths didn't go up. And so the last full year for which we have data is 2018, and, and overdose deaths actually came down a little bit nationally. Uh, and so the fact that deaths didn't go up, and they even came down a little bit, and that's, you know that, that's some reason to be hopeful. It's certainly nothing to celebrate. Because even with the slight decline, um, we are at record high levels of opioid overdose deaths. And, you know, other than the 2017 year, we're at the, you know, it's the worst year in history.
0: What final thoughts would you have for our listeners?
1: I might just reinforce something I had said earlier. Um, I, you know, I think it can be easy to lose site of the need for more cautious opioid prescribing at a time, particularly when deaths involving illicitly synthesized fentanyl and heroin are, are so high um, and you know I, yeah, and and when we have so much work to do on improving access to treatment for the many people who are addicted um, is the need for doctors to prescribe more cautiously can just seem a lot less important. But I do think that if we want the opioid crisis to ultimately come to an end, we need to stop getting more people opioid addicted. And the only way that really is going to happen is is when we get to rational levels of opioid prescribing and even though prescribing has started to trend in the right direction since around 2012, there is no other country on earth that comes close to prescribing as much as we do. You know, Canada and Germany have very high opioid prescribing and, and have experienced you know, a problem associated with their high levels of opioid prescribing, but where our per capita opioid consumption is, is uh, almost double Germany and Canada. So um, we have a very long way to go before we get to rational levels of prescribing.
0: Well, once again, doctor, thank you. Thank you. During my one-hour talk with Dr. Kolodny, he provided a great deal of insight and analysis on the FDA policies and their impact on the opioid epidemic. So what have we learned? We learned the pharmaceutical industry has had considerable influence over the FDA's clinical trial process through impact conferences that have been referred to as pay-to-play meetings. Those meetings led to a modified drug trial process that eliminated all patients who didn't respond favorably to the drugs they were trialing. This streamlined clinical trial process known as enriched enrollment resulted in the approval of highly addictive opioids such as Opana and Zohydro ER, which otherwise would not have been approved. Both were later pulled off the market. We learned that industry-sponsored educational programming for doctors, a practice that helped bring about the opioid epidemic to begin with, is still common today. Through programs like the FDA's Erla-REMS program, the pharmaceutical industry provides unrestricted grants to accredited continuing education providers for the development of courses to teach doctors about the dangers of the products they produce. The FDA's own advisory board voted against the program, but it's still active today. And we learned that the revolving door between big pharma and government has helped the opioid epidemic spiral out of control as influential government and agency committee members have gone to work for the pharmaceutical industry and lobbying firms, sometimes within weeks of playing a key role in decisions favoring industry. When the former head of diversion control at the DEA, Joe Renazizi, was asked if his department could be more like the FDA and work closely with industry, he answered with just one word, no. Let's hope the new FDA commissioner has a little of Joe Renazizi in him. My name is Greg McNeil, I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast, that's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit Cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.